0: You're listening to Eye on the Triangle on WKNC 88.1.
1: Hello, and welcome to the first Eye on the Triangle of 2012. I'm your host, Nick. And I'm your co-host, Jake. We've been
2: really busy making some changes to the show's format for this year, and we're still getting some things figured out, so this week's show might
1: be a little short. But we've still got some great content for you tonight, including a fascinating hitchhiking story, as well as some tips on being water-savvy as the price of water goes up. Also tonight, we have our final segment
2: of This Week in History, and maybe even a movie review. But first, let's look at what to expect weather-wise.
3: Good evening, folks. I'm Dave with the weather. Wednesday will be sunny with some clouds and chilly with 20% chance of rain. Thursday will be partly cloudy, topping out at 51 degrees. Friday will be mostly cloudy and will top out at 58 degrees. Look for showers on Saturday with a 40% chance of rain and our high remaining at 58 degrees. Sunday will be our warmest day this weekend with a high of 60 and 20% chance of rain. Monday will stay cloudy and will get up to 65 degrees. That should do it for this week's weather. Just remember to bring a jacket to class and watch for rain on Saturday. And now, let's see what's going on in the news tonight. Thanks, Nick.
2: The captain of the ship, the Costa Concordia, which ran aground last Friday, has been placed under house arrest. This comes after a tape was released that shows the captain trying to coordinate with the Italian Coast Guard with little success. As of Tuesday, 11 bodies have been found and 24 people remain missing. Political advocates in Wisconsin have submitted more than 720,000 signatures petitioning to have Governor Scott Walker recalled. This comes after a controversial bill last year passed that restricted the bargaining rights of public workers. Starting today at 1 p.m., parents of Wake County students were for the first time able to request where they want their students to go to school in Wake County. This new system has been put in place after the old system of, quote, forced busing was ended after the new school board was elected. Parents have until February 24th to decide on a school.
1: Back in the summer of 2010, Saul Flores decided to walk and hitchhike hitchhike from Ecuador in South America all the way to Charlotte, North Carolina. Here is his story.
4: On Wednesday, January 18th, a new photography exhibit is opening at NC State's library, D.H. Hill. It documents the journey of Saul Flores, a Caldwell fellow from NC State, as he traveled by foot, thumb, and canoe from Ecuador to the United States. Saul is here to talk about his trek. You call your adventure and your project The Walk of Immigrants. To start with, what is that?
5: The Walk of the Immigrants is a journey from Quito, Ecuador, to Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, in which I walked, uh, hitchhiked, I took canoes, I, I pretty much took every form of transportation uh, in hopes of documenting the journey of migrants that head north to the United States. And I used photography as my uh, major tool. And the whole purpose of this, uh, this project was to raise awareness of the racial issues of uh, migrants in the United States, as well as selling these images to help fundraise for um, a school in my mother's hometown in Atensingo, Mexico.
4: When did you decide you wanted to dedicate a summer on this pilgrimage, forsaking comforts, risking your life and pushing your talents far beyond your normal endurance level on a journey that many people consider a last resort?
5: I um I decided when, you know, we you know, through the Caldwell Fellows program I lead a service trip with uh, Luisa Hadamio and my co leaders now are Kevin Miller and uh, this is Beth Adias. So every year we go back to the same school and work with the students and it was upon my return from, you know, our past service trip that I realized how fortunate I was because had my mother not migrated from this community, I would be at this school. And, you know, my educational opportunities have changed so much in the United States. You know, at the time, there was so much tension on uh, the Latin American communities in the United States. So I, I, I think I thought that something needed to be done for these communities.
4: Other than a noble ambition, what did you bring with you on your journey?
5: All right. I brought um, a good pair of sneakers. Um, I brought a rosary a uh, Nikon D80, and a couple changes of clothes, and that's about it. A toothbrush and, you know, basic toiletries. No, no passport? Uh, Yeah, I, I did have a passport for
4: safety, you know. And how many SD cards did you have on your Nikon?
5: I had maybe 15, 20 SD cards, um, ranging from 2 gigabytes to 8 gigabytes. Um, I think I photographed maybe 20,000 images. And the thing is, I would go sometimes a week without uh, an internet connection, so I had no way of transporting these images onto you know, a larger hard drive, so it was just what I had at that moment. You have to be extremely selective, and you have to curate as you photograph, which is, um, I, I think actually helped my, my um, photography in the end.
4: What were you trying to capture?
5: the struggles and beauties of the Latin American culture. So anything that was positive and anything that was negative, anything that could shed light on these communities and could, uh, serve as a tool to educate the American audience. What were you trying to get from this experience? Well, I think, um, the number one thing that I wanted to gain from this is empathy. You know, I, I, I really wanted to help, uh, showcase the actualities of, you know, migrants and, um, You know, I'm not not trying to change anybody's opinion. I'm not trying to tell, you know, an individual what they should think, but, you know, just inform them and educate them about this whole process so that they can form their own opinions. And when people see your work, is that impact being made? I think by sharing the stories of these migrants and by sharing the story of the walk of immigrants, um, I have been able to shed light on on the actual journey of the migrants and I also think that these images will speak for themselves. You know, this is our first exhibition, which is why I'm I'm so excited. Is because I I'm I'm not going to have to stand there and explain these pictures or explain these stories. But these images are going to have to speak for themselves.
4: With the photographs being on display now at DHL, when you see them, do they still resonate as much as when you decided that this was something you had to capture?
5: You know, that, that's actually a really funny question because. I've kind of become attached to these photographs on so many different levels, not just because of their visual composition, but because of the stories associated with these images. Um, many times, I see a photograph, and uh, you know, I, I don't necessarily think about what I what, what I took the picture of, but I remember my state of mind. Whether I was, you know, struggling, whether I was content, whether I was excited, I could identify myself with the image. I could identify my state of mind with
4: the, the photograph. On the nights that you were hurting, that you were scared, that. Things were rough. Was there ever time that you considered the luxury that you had that most migrants don't? Did you ever say, hey, I've got my passport in my back pocket. Bring me home. Or were you ever tempted to make that call? <laughs>
5: well, there were many nights that were difficult. You know, I slept in churches. I slept in parks. I slept in huts. I slept, you know, anywhere that I could find a place to stay. But, you know, that that thought never actually crossed my mind. I was so optimistic about this whole journey. I was so excited about what it could do for the United States. So no, I actually that I thought never never really crossed my mind. Did you make any companions
4: on your journey?
5: Yes, I, I did unintentionally. Uh, many times I actually was uh, ironically walking with other migrants. So it's a state of mind that I think that I was able to really embody because I traveled with migrants from Africa. I traveled with migrants from Australia. I traveled with migrants from Latin America. I met so many individuals, so many people that had that same mentality, which was you know, to make it to the United States for the hopes of
4: a better life. Did you notice a difference in the migrant culture from country to country?
5: Yeah, there were there were so many cultural differences, but they shared one thing, which was optimism. And it was this optimism for a new life, you know, new dreams, uh, new opportunities, uh, new education. So, yeah, there were so many differences, but they all had that, you know, overarching similarity of hope.
4: So how nervous were you when you crossed the Mexico-U.S. border?
5: Well, Juarez was, uh, it was definitely eye-opening. You know, I've heard so many stories about Juarez, um, from Juarez and El Salvador. Those are the two places that I was most uh, uh, timid about. But it was, um, it it lived up to its name. Juarez was an extremely complicated place. That's probably where, you know, most of my stories came from. I, I think I was there for maybe three days. You know, throughout that time, I think maybe 54 people were killed.
4: From your narrative, the fuel that keeps these immigrants going is this optimism, this hope for a better life. What have you seen that happens with them once they cross into the United States? It's the beginning of the process. You
5: know, it's not the end. It's the beginning of a new life, of new worries. Um, But it is a a lot different than what a lot of these migrants think the United States is going to be.
4: And I guess with your mom's journey, does she still feel like a migrant?
5: Well, my, my mother received her residency couple months ago actually so up to this point it was um extremely difficult for our family you know my mother didn't have her paperwork so it was an extremely difficult situation but she just received a residency so everything's um perfect now thank god are you able to stay in contact with the people that you met on this trek but yeah i, I have all of their contact information i met amazing people uh when i was crossing from Colombia to panama uh i stayed with um the indigenous Yala, which is a an indigenous group in uh, panama and they they took me all across panama by canoe which was an amazing experience um i consider them my second family in panama and you know they don't have computers they don't have telephones but i know that if i want to return one day to panama
4: they'll they'll be there. what are some of your favorite photos that you took or what are some ones to keep an eye out for
5: I think my favorite photograph is uh, Threads of a Mayan Child. It was taken in Hachel, Guatemala. And it's a photograph of a child in um, Mayan fabric. And I, I think it's the top photograph by far. I think that one is my favorite visual composition. My, my top image that I can speak of is actually about a student in Atancingo, which he's holding up a paper plate. It says mother, father, daughter, and it illustrates his whole family. But it's really unique because um, he actually lives with his grandmother. His parents migrated to the United States, so he's living, you know, a half-life. But he still has that same hope and that same, that same ideology of what a
4: family should be. So you could also find that on the website. The website being refiningthelines.com. Saul Flores uses this site to document his photographs and his story. Sales of these photographs support the school that provided you the inspiration and the passion that has been fueling this journey and your continuing service work. Were you able to stop by there on your trek? I did, I did. Um, that was actually my
5: second to last stop. And it was perfect because Mexico is so big. Atensingo divided um, the country. So or it was, you know, halfway to the American border. But it was it was just so reassuring, it was so... Um, energizing. You know, I was exhausted. I had been traveling for about two and a half months and seeing these kids just
4: illuminated my spirit and gave me that energy to finish up. What are the lessons that you learn that you want to keep with you always and impart on others?
5: I think my biggest lesson is that,
4: that we all desire the same things. We all desire to be happy. We all desire
5: education. We all desire opportunities. And I think it's important that everybody try to understand where other people are coming from. You know, not just Americans on migrants, but migrants on Americans. Everybody has to not only try to educate, but to listen as well. I think it's a 50-50 uh, battle. Is there anything else you want to say about the Walk of Immigrants? If there's anything that has to be said, I, I think it's, um, you know, I, the Walk of the Immigrants has gotten so much publicity, has been an amazing project, but I think uh, so many people can do similar projects for their own communities. Um, I think the power of the self is amazing. I think that every college student should... Um, Try to take on something that they love and um, push it as hard as they can and uh, make it work. I think that everybody has that responsibility. I I think everybody has a gift. Everybody has a skill that they're supposed to and and meant to um, use to to benefit their community. And I think that everybody should um, know that.
4: The Walk of Immigrants formally opens at 4 p.m. on January 18th with a talk from Saul Flores at the second floor wing of DHL Library in Raleigh, North Carolina in the Assembly Room. You can see the work and read his story at refiningthelines.com. For I am the Triangle, I'm Jacob Downey. We've all heard about how important a resource
2: water is and how important it is to conserve it, but not everybody really knows how to properly do their part. Nick Savage has a story.
1: Did you know that a single dishwasher load can use 25 gallons of water? Or that a washing machine can use 45 gallons of water per load? With the price of water rising here in Raleigh, let's talk about some of the easy ways to save water. Older toilets use more water than new ones, so replacing them might be the way to go. Shower heads can use up to 3 gallons of water per minute, so be sure to limit your time in the shower. Another idea would be to install a low flow, water efficient shower head. Because washing machines are such water hogs, only run them when you have a full load. Likewise with the dishwasher, larger loads save water. Another tip for your dishwasher is to use the short cycle mode and save 10 of those 25 gallons it uses. The faucet on your sink can use as much as two and a half gallons per minute, so turning it off while brushing your teeth or washing your hands can sure add up. Using the garbage disposal also uses water. Instead, use food waste as compost for your garden. As for watering outdoors, installing rain barrels and utilizing the water from them is a great and easy way to save water. Diane, a local resident, shares some of her suggestions from how she and her family save water.
6: We have rain barrels daisy chained all around our property. And I use this water to water our vegetable garden with hoses that have holes drilled into where the plants are. And it's better than a soaker hose because it centers the water dripping on the plants. It's really using the rain coming off the roof to feed the plants that are outside.
1: Diane explains that during droughts, her family takes some extra steps to save even more water.
6: We took the water from rain barrels to rinse our dishes before putting them in the dishwasher to water the plants in the house. We also had everybody take a navy shower and reclaim the water and use that to flush the toilets.
1: By navy shower, Diana is referring to a method of showering in which you rinse yourself, turn off the water while lathering, and turn the water back on to rinse the soap and shampoo off. This may seem a bit extreme, but it amounts to a lot of saved water.
6: We were very conservative. We really pushed that. We felt that it made a difference being a large family that if we did this, it would help.
1: You too can help by employing some of the tips you heard here and hopefully save yourself some money. For I and the Triangle, I'm Nick.
2: Wow, so uh, your family's big into saving water, huh?
1: Yeah, that was my mom. She was talking all about everything we've done to save as much water as we could. I'll be honest, I'm really bad at
2: that. Like, If I could, I really should... Start trying taking shorter showers because I really, like, we don't do any
1: of that. And it's probably
2: something I should try and change.
1: You should take some of those other tips, too. Glad I could help. Thank you. So now we have our next piece from contributor Mark. Uh, It's
0: his reflection on the eugenics
1: task force in North Carolina.
0: Thank you, Nick. Inequality and the denial of basic human rights often seem worlds away from my college life bubble. I try to stay informed, but the rush of life and school frequently obscure my perception of the world. Elaine Riddick changed that for me. Last Tuesday morning, I rushed to the North Carolina Department of Administration office in my roommate's car in attempts to cover a story during my mid-morning break from classes. That sunny January day, the state eugenics task force met for its final meeting to discuss how to compensate the 7,500 victims of eugenic sterilization that the state of North Carolina conducted between 1929 and 1974. Little did I know, at that moment, the woman I sat next to during the meeting was Miss Elaine Marshall, one of those victims. Entering the conference room just in time for the meeting, I sat down and straightened my tie that I had put on prior at the stoplight. I introduced myself, apologetic for my panting, and to my, na- to my neighbors, and Miss Riddick smiled and presented her son and herself. Looking around the conference room, I could make out three distinct groups— the politicians, other journalists, and a crowd of aging working-class African Americans—the vi- the biggest victims of eugenics—during a brief break, I conversed with Miss Riddick and told her I was a reporter with the NC State University student newspaper, the Technician. She said she was a member of a eugenics victims' rights adv- advocacy group and shared her story under whispers as the meeting proceeded. Miss Riddick. A 57-year-old black woman from eastern North Carolina found out she was sterilized when she was 19 years old after experiencing hemorrhaging. Riddick, the victim of rape at 13 years, gave birth to her son Tony when she was 14, and doctors sterilized her shortly after performing a C-section birth. The story I found there wasn't focused on the contrite $50,000 of compensation the state is considering to dish out. But rather, the injustice Miss Riddick endured as a teenager. With Martin Luther King's birthday on Sunday and MLK Day on Monday, let's celebrate how far we've come regarding social justice. But let's not forget how far we still need to go. The story of Miss Riddick is not an isolated case, and many other people, mainly African American women, suffered from institutional racism and discrimination. Despite the Civil Rights Act of the 1960s, and the fact that we have a black president in office, the scars of history are still visible, still visible today. From NCSU Student Media and I in the Triangle, I am Mark Herring.
1: That's that's amazing, Mark. That must have been quite an experience to to witness that and be, be there for that and talk to her, especially.
0: It was it was very humbling and. Uh, Yeah, Miss Riddick, she's a a sweetheart, and um, my thoughts and blessings to her.
2: I mean, it's really crazy when you think about it. You said it was until the
3: 1970s.
0: Until the 1970s, yeah, until 1974, it was officially repealed in 1978, uh, and actually, this was common practice among other states. And uh, I read a a public record, uh, which is from the North Carolina health uh like a health science magazine Mm -hmm. from the 1950s and this one doctor was advocating that more states do this and that was a great uh type of preventive medicine but it was just institutionalized racism um and it's hard to believe that uh you know the united states uh did that sort of stuff and
1: went on on for so long yeah
0: well and it's just uh a little scary how conflicting it is with Mm -hmm. our our values
1: and it's just, we, we
0: put
2: a man on the moon before we even stop sterilizing people. And it's just really crazy to think
0: about. Yeah, it's, it's a little scary.
1: Well, up next we have a review, a review about a movie about a family where everything is not as it seems. We bring you Parents.
2: The 1989 film Parents, by director Bob Balaban, is a dark comedy set amongst the tidy suburbs of post-World War II America. The year is 1954, and little Michael Lemley has just moved into a new town after his father gets a job working for a company. Right away, they look like the typical family one might have found on television in the 1950s. There is the sweater-wearing, bespectacled father, the homely mother, and of course, Michael. Michael is not the typical little boy, however. He seems quiet, shy, and just a little bit disturbed, On the first day at his new school, for example, when asked to share something about himself, he shares his knowledge on the proper way to skin and gut a dead cat. Obviously not the most normal thing for a 10-year-old to have knowledge on. Nevertheless, he cannot help but have the feeling that something in his household is wrong, but cannot seem to get a grasp on it. The audience shares in the experiences of Michael, oftentimes witnessing disturbing events from the point of view of a 10-year-old boy, and seeing the way those events affect Michael throughout the rest of the movie. As the movie delves more deeply into the lives of the Lemleys, and as Michael begins to discover the truth about his parents, they turn hostile and frightening, which is especially unsettling to watch. But every authority figure in the movie has the same message. You're just a child. You're frightened. There's really nothing wrong, and there's nothing to be scared of.
0: When I was a little boy, I was just like
3: you. I was afraid of everything. I used to think there was a monster in my closet. And every night, he would wait until I was asleep and hide under my bed what happened. I grew up to be a big, strong man, just like my dad. And I wasn't afraid of anything ever again. Isn't that a nice story?
2: Both Michael and the audience know something is wrong, and that it has to do with the meat. The leftovers the family eats every single night. The meat Michael knows he does not want to touch. And if you haven't figured it out by now, they're cannibals. Such a disturbing idea set against the background of a quiet little American suburb is exactly why I love this movie. The post-war era is remembered as a time when the idea of a car in every driveway and a chicken in every pot first began to crystallize. And the idea that such a horrible concept could be going on behind the closed doors of the mild-mannered family next door is precisely what makes this movie so much fun to watch. The music and the decor are so typically Americana, it almost seems exaggerated and faked. And that's why it works. Their secret is abhorrent and cringe-inducing. But at the end of the day, who doesn't have their own secrets they're keeping from the neighbors?
6: So,
4: uh, yeah, that movie
2: was pretty weird. Um... <laughs> the ending, especially, was, was very uh, disturbing. You just, If you want to see it, go check it out. It's on Netflix. Yeah. And now, sorry about that. Now we bring you This Week in History with Nick and Dave.
1: Hello, and welcome to This Week in History.
3: I'm Nick. And I'm Dave. This week in 1919, Bentley Motors Limited was founded in London. The company is now owned by Volkswagen and sells between seven and 9,000 cars per year. In 1929, Popeye the Sailor made his first appearance in a comic strip.
1: The Popeye series has inspired films, TV shows, video games, and many other products in its 83-year history and is still in circulation today, though it has had several different authors since its inception. Back in 1943, Duke Ellington performed in New York's Carnegie Hall for the first time.
3: He would return to Carnegie Hall annually for the next seven years to perform some of his longer works. In 1970, the first jumbo jet, the Boeing 747, entered commercial service.
1: The initial jet was licensed under Pan American Airways and made its maiden voyage from JFK to London's Heathrow Airport. In 1973, the U.S. Supreme Court ruled on Roe v. Wade, making elective abortion legal in all 50 states. In 1977, it snowed in Miami. This marks the only time in Miami's history that snow has fallen, and on the same day, it also snowed in the Bahamas. In 1986, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame inducted its first members.
3: The inductees were Little Richard, Chuck Berry, James Brown, Ray Charles, Fats Domino, the Everly Brothers, Buddy Holly, Jerry Lee Lewis, and Elvis Presley. The Hall of Fame has since inducted a total of 180 artists. Let's do birthdays. In
1: 1706, founding father
3: Benjamin Franklin was born. In 1737, American patriot John Hancock was born. Confederate General Robert E. Lee was born this week in 1807. Edgar Allan Poe, American writer and poet, was born this week in 1809.
1: Another Confederate Army general, Stonewall Jackson, was born this week in 1824.
3: A. A. Milne, English author of Winnie the Pooh, was born this week in 1882.
1: Gangster Al Capone was born in 1899.
3: English actor Cary Grant was born this week in 1904.
1: In 1922, actress Betty White was
3: born. American astronaut Buzz Aldrin was born this week in 1930.
1: Actor James Earl Jones was born this week in 1931.
3: American boxer Muhammad Ali was born this week in 1942. In 1946, singer
1: and actress Dolly Parton was born.
3: Steve Harvey, American actor, comedian, and radio personality was born this week in 1957.
1: Actor, comedian, and Canadian Jim Carrey was born this week
3: in 1962. First Lady Michelle Obama was born this week in 1964.
1: This week in 1980, actress and singer Zoe Deschanel was born.
3: American actor Jason Segel was born this week in 1980. Well, that's all the knowledge we've got for you this week. I'm Nick. And I'm Dave. Thanks for listening, and keep it historical. Raleigh. And finally tonight, here's what's going on around campus for the next few days. Hello, and welcome to this week's Community Calendar. I'm Dave. Poetic Portraits of a Revolution will be in exhibition at the Craft Center through February 3rd. You can register for spring classes at the Craft Center this Friday, January 20th. You might start to notice a trend here. The Lee Nielsen Hand Tool event will be held at the Craft Center as well, Friday, January 20th from 10 to 6 and Saturday from 10 to 5. There will be guest woodworkers there to demonstrate their skills and tools, so go check it out. In addition to all these Craft Center-centered Events: We have a rather unusual talk in D.H. Hill's assembly room tomorrow from 4 till 5. NC State student Saul Flores, who hitchhiked from Ecuador to Charlotte in summer of 2010, will be discussing his experiences and what has happened since his remarkable journey. This is free and open to the public. Lastly, the films Fifty Fifty, Drive, and Howl's Moving Castle will be playing in the Witherspoon Student Center Theater this weekend. Well, that should wrap up our week nicely. For more information, be sure to check out the calendar at ncsu.edu. And back to you.
1: Well, that's all we've got for this edition of Eye on the Triangle. We thank you for tuning in.
2: If you enjoyed anything you heard on here tonight, be sure and let us know on our Facebook page.
1: You can also follow us on Twitter at WKNC underscore EOT and read our blog at WKNC.org.
2: Until next week, this has been Eye on the Triangle. Good night.